0: If you would, would, this morning, turn in your Bibles to John uh, chapter 9 and uh, join me. In the pews in front of you, you have the Bibles. That's on page 747, John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who'd sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And said to him go wash in the pool of Siloam which is translated sent so he went away and washed and came back seeing. therefore the neighbors and those who previously previously saw him as a beggar were saying is not this the one who used to sit and beg others were saying this is he still others were saying no but he is like him he kept saying I'm the one so they were saying to him how then were your eyes opened He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. When the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But, that, but others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents in the very of uh, the of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying is this your son who you say was born blind then how does he now see his parents answered them and said we know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how he now sees we do not know or opened his eyes we do not know ask him he is of age he will speak for himself His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man was a sinner. Then he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see so they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes he answered them I told you already and you did not listen why do you want to hear it again you do not want to become his disciples too, do you they reviled him and said you are his disciple but we are disciples of Moses for we know that God has spoken to Moses but as for this man we do not know where he is from man answered and said to them well here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, he has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us, so they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains.
1: Well, good morning. I was driving in this morning and thinking about all, all the kind of, all the different sacrifices that go into even just putting on a, a normal worship service on a Sunday morning, and ultimately the, the chief one is just the sacrifice of God's son on the cross. That's the one we sing about, it's the one we talk about, it's the one we proclaim. Um, it's it's found the foundation of everything that we do, but if you think about um, all the sacrifices that, that followers of Christ made to preserve the word. Um, to pass it down from generation to generation the the sacrifice followers of christ made to take that message to start in jerusalem has now spread all over the world so that you may know the hope and truth of jesus the the sacrifice of of a handful of people 104 years ago who planted this church the sacrifice of people's money to to pay for this miraculous awesome building that we're in the the sacrifice of so many people poured in just to make today possible uh and one of those sacrifices especially on memorial day weekend that we think about is just the sacrifice of of people who served our country so that we can be here this morning without any fear of persecution or prosecution or any, any sort of thing that, that followers of Christ have to gather around the world in secret. And, and, and we understand that um, our freedoms have been bought with a price, both our spiritual freedom and, and our uh, national freedom. And so... This morning, just briefly, I want to take a moment. If, if you are active in the service now, if you are a veteran or if you're a, a, a family member of someone who gave their lives to this country, anybody in those three groups, would you stand right now around this room, please? And then church, can we just give them a round of applause to thank them for their sacrifice for our country? Thank you, guys. And we're going to try to do honor to all the sacrifices that were, were given and, and made to, to, to have this worship service this morning. So we're going to focus our time in on John 9 today. And so if you, have, if you don't have a Bible with you, like Paul mentioned, and thank you, Paul, for reading uh, that passage for us, grab one of those blue ones, turn to page 747, we'll be on page 748 as well, because we're going to reference that a lot today, and we want you to be able to follow along. So before we jump into that, let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful, God, for every price that has been paid to make today possible, the ones that we're aware of and the ones that we're not. Uh, We know that you've pushed forth your gospel and your truth um, based on the blood first of your son and then on so many others. And so, Lord, we're we're grateful for those today, and we ask that as uh, we gather now, as we gather specifically around your word this morning, um, God, that you would honor them and honor us by speaking to us, by revealing yourself to us, by showing us exactly what you want us to know and hear today. Um, And God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the name David Watson might not mean a lot to you uh, because it doesn't mean a lot to us over here on this side of the Atlantic, but the name David Watson means a lot in English uh, church circles. David Watson became a follower of Christ while attending St. John's College in Cambridge, England in the 1950s. And so after that, he felt called into the ministry and started out on on really what was an impressive life of serving the Lord. He was placed, his first pastorate, he was placed in charge of a small church in York England in 1965, and and this was kind of a bleak start because when he got there, less than a dozen people were attending services. Um, He was told that the church was at risk of closing in less than a year due to lack of resources. But within eight years, the congregation numbered in the hundreds and had outgrown multiple building spaces. Um, as his ministry grew, he then became involved with several missionary enterprises. Uh, he contributed to Christian magazines as an author. He was instrumental in unifying uh, the churches in England and Northern Ireland. Uh, John Gunstone's a Christian author over there in London. He wrote of Watson that it is doubtful whether any other English Christian leader has had a greater influence on in this side of the Atlantic since the Second World War. So in many ways, his story is just one of immense influence and one of immense success, but in his 40s, Watson was hit with a sudden and unexpected blow. He was diagnosed with cancer, and the doctors told him the prognosis wasn't good at all. And so through his struggle with the disease, Watson coped the best way he knew how. He wrote a lot. He wrote a book entitled Fear No Evil About His Battle. He wrote other things for magazines, and then on February 18th, 1984, he lost his fight with cancer, and shortly after his passing, Someone going through his personal belongings discovered a journal that he never published, but that David Watson had kept throughout his fight with the disease. And in it, he detailed how God had met him in this fight, how God, was, how God had cared for them, the things that God was teaching him, the things that he would learn. It was a very personal journal. And he, he wrote what could be awesome, like little mini sermons. He wrote about how in the gospel that whenever Jesus was challenged by someone who was suffering or about suffering, that they often asked the wrong questions. Because in the Bible we see the questions that Jesus is being asked about suffering was often why and how. Why did this happen and how are you going to fix this? But those weren't the questions that Jesus was interested in answering according to Watson. They weren't the questions that he wanted us to ask. The questions that Jesus wanted us to ask were what and who. What is God saying to you through this suffering? And who are you ultimately looking to for an answer to all suffering? Watson wrote in his journal, It's sometimes only through suffering that we begin to listen to God because our natural pride and self-confidence have to be stripped painfully away and we become aware perhaps even for the first time of our own personal needs. Today in our journey through the book of John we come to chapter 9 and chapter 9 is somewhat unique in John in, in this aspect. The whole chapter is just one story. And so I want to thank Paul for reading this morning because he read the entire chapter because the entire chapter is, is, it contains one story. And in this story what we see is Jesus meeting someone in the midst of suffering. And I know we could go several different directions this morning with this chapter and we'll touch briefly on a few things. But the main thrust of today comes as a result of what many of you are facing. And so I want us to walk through this story together, because I think it gives us a great glimpse into how God views suffering. Because the Bible is clear about this. Suffering is an unavoidable aspect of life. There's no one who goes through this life and avoids it. And so it'd be wise of us, if we're all going to face it, right? It'd be wise of us to learn what Jesus thinks about suffering, how he wants us to view it, and the questions that he wants us to ask as we go through it, so at the start of John 9, Jesus is traveling, and he comes alongside a blind man. And there's a really important detail that John throws in force in verse 1. And he said, tells us that this man was born blind. So here's what, that's, here's what that means. This means this wasn't some temporary illness that struck this man that may be reversible, may be cured. It wasn't some accident that he, that he had later in life that could be reversed. His entire life, this man had been blind. And so try for a moment, if you will, just just to put yourself into his shoes, to never once see light, to never see his parents' faces, to never see food or the stars or sunset, to to walk about all the time in complete and total darkness. And Jesus' disciples, these men who are traveling with him and learning from him, they have a question for Jesus in verse 2. So look at John chapter 9 and verse 2. It says, his disciples asked him, Rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind now these disciples ask an interesting question but it's a question from a point of ignorance Okay, this was a commonly held belief in their day, in fact almost all the Israelites believed this, that the idea was that if you suffered it was the direct result of your sin or the sin of your parents and so this is it isn't very sympathetic but this is how they would handle it, whenever something bad would happen to you whenever you'd go through suffering the first question they'd ask you is what did you do you angered God somehow. You, you cursed yourself by doing wrong. What, what was it? Now, this is not a biblical teaching. The Old Testament, which the Israelites had, was clear. The Old Testament is crystal clear that sin brings consequences, and sometimes even in the generations that follow, but that's because sin kills. It's what it does. Sin ruins everything. But what the Bible does not teach is that when you go through suffering, that it can be directly tied to a specific sin in your life. The entire book of Job deals with this idea directly. In the book of Job, everything that Job has gets taken from him. His own, all his children are killed, and then he gets a horribly painful disease, and he has some friends, we're told, who come to comfort him. Right? And, and for most of the book, more than 30 chapters, all these friends are doing, they keep telling Job, you did something to cause this. Right? You, you have brought this on yourself in some way. What is it? And Job keeps telling them, they're wrong. I'm, I'm innocent. I've done nothing to deserve this. And at the end of the book, God shows up and speaks. And he has basically two messages. Number one, he tells Job, friends, you're wrong. And then number two, he tells Job, guess what? You're wrong. And it's kind of confusing at first until you realize what God is telling his people, that he simply won't be able to explain why they're facing the specific instance of suffering so they won't ever know why. Why? Because the thrust of the Bible is this, that all of us will suffer, and we're given the big picture reason. The big picture reason that we suffer is because of sin. All human suffering is a result of living in a sinful world. But the Bible does not waste any time on trying to tell us why we individually will face the specific suffering that you and I will do. Because to blame specific instances of suffering on a specific sin to equate it to some sort of divine justice is beyond us and simply isn't accurate according to God. In fact, to state with any kind of certainty at all that we know why we or someone else is facing suffering is to step outside of our abilities, to step outside of our knowledge. We simply don't know. And so Jesus answers his disciples. He corrects them. Look at verse 3. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. He tells them, man, it's not... This man's blindness is not the result of his sin or his parents' sin. It's not the cause of it. But instead, this occurred so that Jesus could display the work of God in this man's life. He tells his disciples that as long as, as long as he's still here, as long as Jesus is on this earth, he must do the work he's been sent to do. He must bring light to the darkness. And in that, he must give God's ultimate answer to suffering. But I also want us to note this before we move on in the story. Jesus has a relationship with his disciples that he is training and teaching them. And so when they ask him a theological question, he's going to answer them. He's going to do so again in two chapters in chapter 11. When they're questioning why Lazarus had to die, he's going to answer his disciples' question. But Jesus also knew that there was a time and a place for intellectual questions and that it was not every time and every place. Because the only person that ever walked this earth that could answer the question of why you were facing a specific type of suffering was Jesus Christ. Yet whenever he was in the presence of someone who was facing suffering, he did not act like a theologian. He did not carry himself like a professor. He met them where they were. He lowered himself to them. He showed them compassion. He ministered to them and strengthened them. The biggest problem I have with these disciples' questions is that they saw this man as a theological discussion and not a person. Jesus did not make that mistake. So listen, whenever you're with someone who's suffering, who's in the midst of the worst or most challenging moments of their life, that's not the time for you to be a philosopher. Don't ever be Job's friends. Don't tell them your theory as to why this is happening. Because none of that stuff is helpful. There may be a day where they're open to that kind of conversation. But in the midst of the press, you know what you offer? You offer comfort. Just be there. Tell them you love them. Tell them that God loves them. Remind them that he's bigger than this and he's right there with them. That's a time for mercy. That's a time for grace. It's a time for compassion. It's not a time for a lecture. So after Jesus answers his disciples, he turns his attention to this man who's been born blind since birth. And look what he does. It's an interesting detail. Verse 6. It so says, after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. And this word means "sent." so the man went and washed and came home seeing. See, sometimes I think we fly over details in the Bible without realizing how weird that they are. Is what we just read weird to anybody else? Okay, here's, here's my example. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals two blind men. You know how he does it? He simply touches their eyes. Okay, Mark 8, he, he heals the blind man, and here's how he does it. He spits in the man's eyes and then touches him, which already is kind of gross enough for me. Right? But here he goes to a whole nother level, right? He spits on the ground, and he gets down, he makes mud out of his spit, and then he rubs it all over the man's eyes. I mean, nobody could get away with this but Jesus. Right? You, why don't you go ahead and try this? The next time someone tells you that you have a headache, go out there, spit on the ground, mix some mud with it, and then go rub it on the temples, and just see how that goes for you, all right? So let's, just, let's ask the question, what, what in the world is Jesus doing here? Right, first off, why do anything at all? all right, we, we've read elsewhere in the Gospels where Jesus heals someone from far away. He doesn't have to be in their presence. Other times he just says the word and, and it happens. But didn't we see him touching eyes and spitting in eyes and making holy Play-Doh? I mean, what, what is the point of all this? But Jesus always has a reason for the things he did. And I think the purpose for the mud was at least twofold. I'm sure it was bigger than that. But one, Jesus changed the method of his miracles so that we would be forced to focus on the message of them. Jesus Jesus Christ never performed a miracle for no reason at all. There was always a bigger meaning or message behind it. But if every time he performed a miracle, he did the same thing, almost like a ritualistic ceremony, we would focus on that as human beings and then we'd attempt to copy it. But if he constantly switched it, we would see the miracles for what they were. They were displays of his power meant to teach us much, a much more important lesson. And secondly, with this healing, Jesus is also picking a fight. And here's why. The entire nation of Israel was trapped in blindness. The man before him was physically blind, but Israel, the Jews were spiritually blind. And they'd been blinded by the law. They had taken God's holy and perfect law that he had given to them through Moses and had become completely consumed by the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. And so in their observance of it, they had ignored the calls for mercy and love and grace, and they'd zeered in totally on following the rules and regulations of it. And there was no finer example of that than the Sabbath day. Because in the law of Moses, right, they were told that the Sabbath day was the day that was to be holy and set apart. They were not to work on the Sabbath, but instead dedicate it to the Lord. And the heart behind this is super easy to grasp. It's not hard. You don't need a Bible degree. The heart behind it is this, that one day a week we are to stop chasing the things of this world. We are to stop chasing our demands and our priorities and our to-do list and just take a day to reflect on the goodness of God and worship him. It should be a day that we honor him and prioritize him. Now, ironically, it's become one of the least followed commands by Christ followers today, but it's another sermon for another day. Right. We ignore this command far too often. With the Jews, they didn't ignore it, but they missed the heart of it, behind it completely. And so what they did is instead of just giving God a day, instead of honoring him with it, they zeroed in on that regulation that you should not work on it. And that became their entire focus. And what they did was they wrote, they added hundreds of rabbinic traditions, and these were just rules, things that you weren't allowed to do on the Sabbath day, or else they would label you as a lawbreaker and somebody who didn't observe the Sabbath, which is a huge insult. And it's hugely important to point out, right, that these were not given to them by God. They wrote them in themselves. They added them in. And guess what one of the rules was? That no one should form or need clay on the Sabbath. And Jesus was aware of this. And look what we're told in verse 14. John chapter 9 verse 14. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was what? a Sabbath. Man, how cool is that? He could have just healed this man. He could have just said the words or touched his eyes. He, he, but he knew what day it was. He knew what the ramifications of this. So he chose to make mud. He's picking a fight He's causing a divide on purpose because he wants all to see the difference between he and religion. You see, to Jesus, healing this man, alleviating his physical suffering, caring for his soul means more than following a list of restrictive rules. And so to Jesus, he wants to give this man, this blind man, sight, but not just physical sight. He wants this man to see the difference between human beings trapped and binded by religion and themselves and the difference in the freedom and sight that he brings. And so what Jesus does is he heals this man in a way that will anchor the religious leaders on purpose, and it worked. First thing this man is asked by his neighbors is, how did he heal you? Right? And so he tells them. He made mud. And so they tattle, and they run this man to the Pharisees, and they tell them the story. Here's a man who was born blind since birth, and, and now today he can see, and he's telling us that Jesus is the one who healed him. And look at their first question, verse 15. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? They were divided. Now, did you see the insanity in that? I mean, think about it. They were just told... That Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. He was blind his entire life, and now he can see. And most of them, when they heard that story, all they could notice, all their brain picked up on, was he made some mud. It's the only detail they got. And so their conclusion is, well, he can't be from God because he didn't keep the Sabbath. What are they talking about? Right? This, I mean, I'm trying to equate it today. This would be like if someone in this church had been blind their entire lives, and they came in next Sunday, and all of a sudden they could see. And we'd all just be blown away and we ask them, wait a minute, how, how in the world does this happen? And they tell us it was Jesus. Jesus Christ appeared to me and he told me that I'm to go to Kroger and buy 16 cans of beans, and 16 specifically. And then he told me to go pay for them in the express lane. And then I walked out and for the first time in my life I could see. And if we were like the Pharisees in the stories, we'd say, wait, did you hear that? He told you to pay for 16 items in the express lane when the sign says 15 or less? He can't be from God, he's a rule breaker. And yes, I know that's a stupid, stupid analogy, all right, I get that, but I couldn't come up with a better one, all right. And secondly, listen, it's no less dumb than what the Pharisees did. There is a man standing before them, telling them that Jesus healed his eyes that he could, that, that could not see since he was born, and most of them chose to focus on the fact that he made some mud. I mean, this is idiocy, and now the Pharisees smell blood in the water. They, they want to go for the kill. They want to be able to trap Jesus in this Sabbath-breaking shame and it would help a lot if they could just prove that this healing wasn't legit. So they're going to do some background work and they call in the man's parents and they ask the man's parents, is this your son? Is this the one that they, everyone's saying was born blind? How, how is it that he can now see? And his parents, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you, his parents were not a beaming light of courage here. They, they don't lie, they, they tell the truth, they answer the questions, but boy do they chicken out because, you see, word has gotten out that the Pharisees hate Jesus. We're told in verse 22 that anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah was going to be put out of the synagogue. And that might just be a phrase to you, but that, that was excommunication. And this throwing out of the synagogue came with some consequences. Because if you were in the first century you were thrown out of the synagogue, not only would you not be allowed to attend the synagogue or worship, but you would also be cut off from much, if not all, social interaction. You'd then be seen as outcast and labeled as a heretic and a false teacher about God. And so, what would often follow being thrown out of the synagogue is that person would then become a victim of violence, and those carrying out the violence against them would believe that they were serving God with it. And so, this was a pretty big threat. And in light of that, his parents play it really safe. They're like, Yeah, that's our son. He was born blind, but how this happened, we don't know. He's a big boy, ask him. Right? If you're this guy, you think, geez, mom and dad, thanks for that. You really stepped up and threw all the pressure back on me there, didn't you? Right? Because what's happened now is these Pharisees didn't get anything they were looking for, and they're even angrier now. They can't discredit the miracle. In fact, it was confirmed. So it's hard. Their job is harder. And so they bring in this man for a second round of question. Look at verse 24. The second time they summoned the man who'd been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. You ever hear the term leading the witness? See, first off, when they say give glory to God by telling the truth, that is, that's a significant detail. Right? In a Jewish trial in front of religious leaders, that phrase would then put the witness under oath. Right? So in, in our courtrooms, right, we have someone place their hand on a Bible and swear to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth to help them God. That, that was our, that's our process for it. This is their process for that. When they say give glory to God, they are putting this man under oath. And then they let him know exactly what he better tell them. We know this man is a sinner, they say. That, that's not even a question. All right? this is a clear warning. Tell us what we want to hear. And I love his response because we can learn so much from it. Look at verse 25. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. So he doesn't involve himself in the debate. He hasn't inserted himself in the rift between Jesus and the Pharisees. He doesn't even know Jesus. Remember, he still hasn't even physically seen Jesus. So he can't answer all of their questions about him. But there's one thing that he knows for absolute certain. His entire life he's been blind. And nothing had an answer for that. No one had a cure for that. Not until Jesus came along. And now he's standing before them and he can see. And really that's all he needs to know, isn't it? Are you aware that you don't have to be a scholar to share the glory of Jesus with others? Or that you don't have to be an expert to tell others about how awesome he is? It's why most often it's brand new believers in Jesus that are the most effective in leading others to him. Because somewhere along the way, the longer we serve Christ, we we start to buy into this lie that we need to have a Bible degree and be able to answer all the hard questions that anyone could ever ask before we can speak up and tell others about Jesus. And right here, we have a great example of all that we need. I don't know about your questions, this man said, but I know this, he changed my life. I was blind, and then he showed up, and now I can see. And if you know Jesus this morning, you know that he changed your life. You were dead in your sins. You were blinded from the truth, and he let you see. He died for you on the cross for your sins. He saved your soul. He forgave you. He has granted you eternal life. He has comforted you in suffering. He's encouraged you. He's given you a hope. He's empowered you. He's strengthened you. He's used you. The only thing you have to know is what he's done for you. Because that's the most powerful testimony there is. And in verse 26, the Pharisees asked this man again, how did he do this? It's the fourth time in this chapter, the fourth time in this day that this question has been asked. First, his neighbors asked him, then the Pharisees asked him, then they called on his parents and asked them, and now they're asking him again. And this man, is, he's losing his patience, he just can't take much anymore. He's like, man, I've already answered this, and you don't want to listen. Do you want to be his disciples too? Which gets them all mad. Look at verse 28. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. And the man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And then they threw him out. See, he shows all the resolve and the courage that his parents didn't. No matter what the pressure, no matter what they threatened him with, he will tell them proudly what Jesus has done for them, because he was blind, and now he can see, and there's nothing they can do to him to change that. And being unwilling to listen, the Pharisees kick this man out of the synagogue, and in verse 35, Jesus gets word that he's been thrown out. And so he goes and finds the man, and he asks him this question, Do you believe in the Son of Man. That's a title that Jesus used a lot for himself. It's a title reserved for the Messiah. It's a title reserved for the Son of God. And Jesus asking this man, do you believe in the Son of God? Look at verse 36. Who is he, sir, the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. The man wanted to believe, he was just ignorant. He wants to believe, he just doesn't know who the Son of God is, and Jesus tells him, it's me, you're, you're seeing him now. And think about how powerful that line is to somebody who's seen for the first time in their life in that day. The one who healed you, the one who stands before you, the one who's talking to you, I'm, he, I'm the Son of God. And the man tells Jesus, well then Lord, I believe. Of course he did. And he worships Jesus. Now, that might seem like a, like a toss-in, right? It's just a small little conversation that occurred at the end of this really big day where there was healings and trials and being thrown out of the synagogue. But, man, this was nothing but small. This conversation was more important than anything that had come before the entire day, including the healing. Because the Bible is incredibly Consistent in teaching about belief in Jesus It tells us that belief in Jesus is required For the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in heaven And so without believing in Jesus our sins aren't forgiven Without believing in Jesus we don't get eternal life in heaven Without believing in Jesus we don't get either The Bible also lets us know what belief in Jesus looks like Because belief in Jesus as shown to us in the Bible Is always personal but it is not private It's always personal personal but it's also quite public and here's what i mean by that this man had already gone public about his feelings about jesus he'd stood in front of an angry mob who threw him out of the synagogue and he never once recanted he told them proudly what jesus had done for them he defended jesus but he didn't yet know jesus personally did he he even admitted it right he said whether this man's a sinner or not i don't know the man told the pharisees which is why jesus circled back and found him Because Jesus wanted to tell this man who he was. He wanted to reveal himself to him. He wanted to show himself to this man so that he would believe in Jesus and worship him. Because no one could make that decision for him. See, it was possible without this second conversation, it was possible this man could live the rest of his life seen and then die in his sins. And Jesus didn't want that. More important than physical sight was spiritual sight. And so after granting this man his physical sight, he came back to him to enlighten his mind and enlighten his soul. I am the son of man. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God. Do you believe in me? And the man did. And what I'm arguing today is that is, that, that is way more important than the rest of the chapter. Because belief in Jesus is incredibly personal. Your parents cannot make this choice for you. Your friends cannot make this choice for you. Your church cannot make this choice for you. You And you alone have to decide, do you believe in Jesus or not? Nobody can do that for you. It's personal, but it also isn't private. If Jesus died on the cross for me, if he took on my penalty, if he forgave my sins, if he granted me eternal life forever, I am not to keep that to myself. After all that he did, he's to become the most important part of who I am. I should live my life for his glory. I should become a part of his church to get more and more of him in my life. I should read his word to know him more and more intimately. I should obey him by being baptized and aligning my life with his teachings. I should be willing to tell others about what he's done for me. And yes, to some of you this might come easier. To introverts, parts of that is hard. But man, he's worth it, is he not? This man in John 9 was willing to be kicked out of the synagogue and face persecution, and that was before he even knew Jesus personally. Because our faith in Jesus is immensely personal, but it is not private. And in order to have this belief, in order to experience his grace and love, we must become aware of our need. And that's the one last lesson that Jesus has for the Pharisees in this chapter. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world... So that the blind will see and that those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus says that he part of his reason for coming to this world was not only to give sight to the blind, but also that those who see would become blind. And the Pharisees get all offended again. They're asking what are you saying? We are blind? And that's when Jesus explains what he meant. He says, the only reason that you're blind is because you claim you can see. And I want you to think of that line as you think back over the entire chapter and this entire story. Their blindness is everywhere, and they're the only ones who can't see it. This should have been a miraculous day for them. They have, in their midst, one of the most amazing things that they would have ever seen. A man, blind since birth, having been healed, and he's standing in front of them. And instead, their entire focus on, in the chapter is on how this happened. And not just how, but was one of their precious Sabbath laws broken in the process. And not one time do they stop to consider this. Who is this that heals a man who's born blind? I mean, we've got a guy walking around our city who who's has the power to heal blind people. What do we do with that truth? Those thoughts never cross their mind. And the reason they don't is because they don't see themselves as needing anything. Listen to The way they talk about this they're disciples of Moses. They have the law. They're the religious elite. They are superior. They have the authority. And yet, when Jesus comes along, who's greater than Moses... Jesus who fulfilled their law in every single way, Jesus who is the supreme ruler of all creation, Jesus who is their authority, Jesus who is literally God in the flesh. They were blind and could not see him, and they were blind because they didn't believe they needed him. You see, one of our biggest hurdles to Jesus is our inability to see our need for him. We can go years through this life and just think that we're okay. We've got some kind of deal with God. We've negotiated this sort of plan with him. We're not against him. We, we just don't need him right now. And the most gracious thing that God can ever do for you is to show you your need of Jesus. And sometimes these go better than others. Sometimes he does this through a friend. Sometimes he does this through a worship service. Sometimes his word breaks through. Sometimes he uses his spirit to draw you to himself. Sometimes he reveals himself through other people. But sometimes... Sometimes it's through suffering. But make no mistake about it, every single thing that God has done in your life, every success and every failure, every victory and every loss, every time of peace and every struggle, every move, every job, every person, every sunset, every conversation, every moment, everything that God has done in your life is so that you would see him. So that you would see him. Jesus, that you would see your need for him, that you would believe in him, and that by believing in him, you would find your purpose and forgiveness, and you would find hope and joy in eternal life. And there's nothing that God would not trade for that. There's nothing that you can experience in this short-term, temporary life on this earth, no matter how bad that is not worth that for God. Because God knows that that if this stage wasn't a timeline for eternity, that your life would just be a tiny little speck that you couldn't even see. So he would use everything in his disposal to get you to him. For this man in John 9, I can't even begin to imagine the pain and confusion of being born blind. I can't begin to imagine the years of going through life, not being able to see, not being able to enjoy just simple pleasures that we all take for granted. But it was the very thing that Jesus used to bring him to himself. And so for the last... 2,000 years, and for the rest of eternity, I know what the Bible tells me. The Bible tells me that, that, that the, the moment his life on earth ended, he was ushered into an eternity of perfection and bliss with Jesus, a place where there is no more shame and no more suffering and no more blindness and no more illness and no more death. And if we could ask that man today, would he trade in the blindness to be born healthy? He would tell us, what are you, crazy? It was so worth it. Because what God is always up to is he's always preparing people for eternity. We're asking why he's doing things here. It's always with eternity in mind. It's the work he's always up to. And in that work, he's revealing himself to us. So if you're in the midst of suffering this morning, I want to compel you to start asking the right questions. Stop asking why. Stop asking how. And start asking who and what. Who is my hope through this trial? Who is my answer to this suffering? Who who can actually free me from this? And what is he trying to teach me? What's he trying to tell me about myself? What's he trying to tell me about him? Once you start asking the right questions, you're going to find that Jesus is your hope, that Jesus is your answer, that Jesus is the one who... Yes, can heal you here temporarily if he so chooses, but most importantly, Jesus is the only one who can heal you forever in heaven. And he is using this trial, he's using this period of suffering in your life for the same reasons he uses every single thing that comes along your way. He's revealing himself to you. He's teaching you something about him that you don't yet know. He's showing you depths of his love and mercy that you haven't yet experienced. He's expressing his power and grace in your life in ways that you haven't yet seen. And you will be, no matter what this is, better off for it. So do you believe? Do you believe first and foremost in Jesus? Have you personally believed in him and made him the Lord of your life? And if so, are you trying to hear him now? Are you listening? Are you aware of his presence? Will you, will you put your focus on him? After David Watson died, his journal was filled with entries of him seeking after the Lord. One of the most powerful they found reads like this. He wrote towards the very end of his life, through the unexpected diagnosis of cancer, I was forced to carefully consider my priorities in life and to make some necessary adju- adjustments. I still do not know why God allowed this cancer nor does it bother me but he writes I'm beginning to hear what God is saying and this has been enormously helpful to me so I don't know in a room beside I don't know everything that you're facing today I don't know all that stands in front of you but boy do I know what you need more than anything else whether life is hard or good right now more than anything else you need Jesus More than anything else, regardless of where you're at, you need more and more and more of him in your life. Will you submit to what he's doing? Will you open yourself up to what he's trying to tell you? Will you give yourself to him in this? Let's pray. Father, rarely are we grateful for physical suffering in this life. Rarely are we grateful for trials and difficulties, but God, as we look back around this room and think of how many of those you used to reveal yourself to us, how many of those you used to give us more of Jesus, how many of those you you used to trade in short-term, physical, temporary pain for an eternal joy that will last forever. Lord, even if just for today, we want to say thank you. God, if there's anybody in our midst this morning, Lord, who has not believed in Jesus Christ, who has not surrendered their life to him, I pray that wherever they're sitting right now, they would just invite him in. Right now, they'd pray and ask Jesus to forgive their sins and come into their life, that they would make this really personal choice that no one else can make for them, that in this life, they're going to follow him. And God, for the many in our midst that we know about and the many others we probably don't who are going through a really difficult time right now. Lord, give them the grace and give them the strength and give them the courage to stop asking why and start asking who. Who is my hope in this? What is he trying to teach me? Lord, may we surrender and submit ourselves to your work in our lives, even in the difficult times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: During this last song, I want to invite you guys to um, just take this time to reflect on what God is doing in your life, Um, maybe respond to the call he has in your life, but um, if you know the song, feel free to sing along.